Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good afternoon or good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Avia uh, presentation, uh, which, as many of you know, is a little bit different today from that which was originally advertised. We expect to hear from a U.K. barrister, uh, about some of the issues confronting law students and lawyers uh, in the UK and about similarities and differences in their experience to ours. But that didn't work out. Instead, we're, instead, we're all very, very, very lucky to have in, in his stead uh, two very, very wonderful advocates who have done so much for the blindness community uh, and for ACB members uh, over the years. And they are Tori Atkinson, and Rosie Lee Bichelle from uh, Disability Rights Advocates. I need not tell you about DRA. Uh, anybody who has followed uh, the civil rights efforts and the advocacy efforts of our organization knows what a central role DRA has played in so many pivotal cases and so many key settlement agreements uh, and so much other diverse good advocacy. Uh, we're going to talk today, hopefully, uh, about a number of factors which are of topical interest. Uh, first of all, though, I want to give you the opening CEU credit uh, for this session. It's 29505. That's 29505. And I'll give you the closing credit uh, at the end, so so please stay awake. Uh, uh, we're all ho also hoping to hear from uh, our friend Chris Bell uh, in a few minutes. Uh, I also want to mention that many of you had expected that uh, this session would include uh, Avia's annual business meeting, but we're going to defer the annual business meeting for the sake of giving these presenters uh, all the time that, we, that uh, they need, or as much time as we have, uh, and to facilitate the discussion in the wake of their remarks. Uh, anybody who's not a member of Avia but who would like to attend the business meeting, we hope that many of you will. Anyone who's not a member of Alvia who so won't get automatically the notice when we reschedule it, which will be soon, uh, please contact me uh, to indicate your interest, and I'll make sure that you are personally and directly apprised of the time when we schedule the business meeting for. It says uh, Steve Mendelson. My phone number is 510-357-1844. Uh, and uh, you can also email at smendel, Stephen Mendelson, S-M-E-N-D-E-L, smendel, at panix, P-A-N-I-X dot com, smendel at panix dot com. So thank you very much, and without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to our, uh, our esteemed guests, to whom we're especially grateful uh, for stepping into the breach at the last minute and giving us a very valuable session today. So Tori and Rosie, why don't you take it away? Thank you so much. This is Tori Atkinson. Um, I thank you so much for that lovely introduction. I am sorry I do not have a beautiful British accent, <laughs> uh, so I hope you're not too disappointed. But um, you know, we're uh, uh, excited to be here and to talk a little bit about the work that we've done, particularly on behalf of ACB members. Um, so, as I said, I'm Tori. I'm a staff attorney with Disability Rights Advocates. I've been here for about three years, um, and I do litigation uh, in this area. I've been doing the APS litigation, Accessible Pedestrian Signals, which we'll talk about soon. Um, and I also do litigation on behalf of students with diabetes and the inaccessible New York City subway system. Um, so really all kinds of areas. Uh, Rosie? 
Hi, everyone. My name is Rosie Bichelle. Um, I'm a Justice Catalyst Fellowship Attorney at DRA, and I've been at DRA for almost two years now. Um, and uh, like Tori said, we have had the pleasure of representing uh, ACB affiliates and members um, in a lot of different issues. I personally um, have been able to represent ACB members and affiliates um, in the context of uh, voting access um, litigation. Um, I also spend a lot of my time working on um, uh, challenging uh, punitive conditions and, and unconstitutional conditions of confinement, especially for people with disabilities in immigration detention centers across the nation. So that's a, a brief um, rundown of, of my work. And I'll pass it back to Tori um, to kick us off, I guess, um, on DRA generally. Yeah, so uh, you might have heard of us. Um, we are a nonprofit organization that works on behalf of people with all kinds of disabilities in all kinds of areas. Um, and as the introduction made clear, we work with ACB affiliates all over. I have the pleasure of working with the ACB of New York. Um, but we have done cases related to um, uh, people who are blind in areas of uh, pedestrians. In uh, we have a uh, settlement agreements with Hulu, Netflix, HBO, and AMC theaters related to audio description. Um, we have done sidewalks cases related to detectable warnings and tactile paving in New York, and we have ongoing um, litigation in Philly and Baltimore. Uh, we have done website accessibility uh, with the New York Department of Elections with. Um, uh, an emergency alert system in New York. Uh, and also uh, we have a case on behalf of the Lighthouse regarding the inaccessibility of ADP, which is a type of accounting software. Um, we've worked on app accessibility. So uh, we sued the San Jose Sharks because their um, app for hockey, if you don't know, um, was inaccessible. And um, we've also done things like emergency preparedness, um, which became more and more necessary after uh, Hurricane Sandy and a bunch of other natural disasters to make sure that there are plans in place um, for evacuations. And uh, the pandemic has brought forth issues like remote learning <laughs> um, and its inaccessibility. And then as Rosie said, we also do work in detention facilities. So she's working on ICE. I'm working on issues in adult prisons. And we've also had cases um, in uh, for juveniles, uh, both in adult and non-adult contexts. So uh, we wanted to kick it off with um, voting. Uh, Rosie has been doing some amazing work about voting rights across the country. Um, so Rosie, why don't you take that away? Sure. This is Rosie again. Thank you, Tori. Um, so uh, for some general background on the voting, uh, the more recent voting access work that DRA has, has uh, pursued, um, we in the last year and a half or so, um, initiated litigation uh, in several states addressing inaccessible absentee voting programs. Um, that was in Indiana, New York, and North Carolina. I'll talk briefly about um, all of them, but then we'll focus a lot of my time on North Carolina. Um, so each of these states, like many others, um, had uh, print-only absentee voting programs in place, um, which uh, I don't know if I have to tell everyone here, I'm sure everyone is aware, but that generally forces blind voters and other voters with print disabilities to forfeit the privacy and independence of their vote if they do choose to vote absentee, um, thereby excluding them from 
those voters with disabilities from absentee voting programs in violation of um, federal disability law. So um, not only in Indiana specifically, not only was their program print-based, but uh, Indiana did not even provide voters with the choice in who would assist them. Um, and, and per state law, um, voters seeking assistance to mark their absentee ballots were required to request what they call a traveling board, um, which is comprised of two volunteers from local county elections agencies um, who would come to their home and who would then um, mark the ballot for the voter. Um, typically, these would be people who the voter would not know, um, and so they would be required to, to divulge their vote to people who they did not know. Um, so these barriers were all pretty longstanding, um, but they became ever more apparent during the COVID-19 pandemic um, when voters were forced to choose between their health um, and exposure to COVID-19 um, versus the privacy and independence of, of their ballot if they were in states where they um, had accessible in-person voting. Um, so now speaking a little bit more specifically about North Carolina, um, we filed this suit last July. Um, and in our complaint, we described the North Carolina State Board of Elections exclusion of voters with disabilities from the absentee voting program, as I had described based on their um, print-based program. Um, in that case, we represented the ACB state affiliate um, as well as the North Carolina Protection Advocacy Organization, um, in addition to several um, individual plaintiffs. And we have, we often in a lot of our cases have that sort of organizational and individual configuration of, of clients, um, because that way we, when we have organizations with, with for example, statewide membership of, um, of uh, voters with disabilities or people who are blind, then then that ensures that we have standing um, should the individuals need to leave the case. And But then we also uh, seek to, we tend to have individual plaintiffs as well, whose personal experience with the barriers we seek to address, um, who have personal experience with the barriers we seek to address and who demonstrate different facets of the community and the community's experience of, of the problem. So back to North Carolina specifically, um, we originally filed suit in July and then um, in our complaint, we called for the State Board of Elections to provide accommodations to voters with disabilities such that they could vote privately and independently from home. This included fully accessible electronic voting mechanisms, as well as um, alternate format print ballots, including braille and large print. Uh, we followed up with um, a preliminary injunction calling for relief for the 2020 general election, um, given the, the short turnaround. Um, and in September of last year, um, the Eastern District of North Carolina granted our preliminary injunction, ordering that the North Carolina State Board of Elections expand the accessible electronic absentee mechanism, which they already had in place for uh, overseas and military voters, to uh, blind voters and other voters with print disabilities. There was pretty short turnaround between the granting of the PI and the election. However, it's still um, expanded access um, to the absentee voting program, such that um, many voters were able to vote privately and independently absentee um, in, in the 2020 general election. Because it was a preliminary injunction specific to the 2020 election, we had to return to court um, for permanent relief. 
And so we subsequently filed a motion for judgment on the pleadings. Um, uh, And that was granted uh, only slightly more than a month ago, um, which was a really great victory. So now North Carolina is required to permanently provide accessible electronic absentee voting, also known as remote accessible vote by mail, in addition to providing alternate format print ballots um, and accommodations more broadly for voters with disabilities. They're also required to to make their their website, um, WCAG, accessible um, and provide some training and direction to county boards on on voting accessibility. So that was a great victory in North Carolina. Um, And uh, that came about without legislation. Um, As I'm sure you are all aware, there has been a recent wave of state voting legislation that implicates the exercise of the franchise by blind voters and other voters with disabilities um, in multiple ways. Um, Some of these changes have been positive. Um, For example, West Virginia and Indiana recently passed laws seeking to make remote electronic voting more um, available. However, a lot of these changes have been negative. um, And uh, some of these include the recent Georgia bill restricting um, many voting locations and methods of voting and restricting how, um, what kind of assistance can be provided to folks waiting in line to vote. Um, And these rules at this point will have, we believe will have great impact on people with disabilities. Um, It's, it's, uh, I mean, in in a myriad of ways. I would say for folks who are more interested in in, um, these, the wide ranging state legislation, um, Clark Rocheville, the ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, uh, is giving a presentation, I believe, tomorrow at, at noon um, Eastern time, and he may be covering some of these issues. There's also some more information about uh, broader legislation um, on the ACB website, um, as well as via the National Coalition on Accessible Voting. And so with that, I believe that concludes my, my report on voting. Um, and I will pass it back to Tori to talk about some of our other cases. And I will mention, we will have time for questions about everything we're talking about um, at the end of our presentation. But right now I can have a few minutes. Um, if folks have voting specific questions, um, I'd be happy to answer for maybe about five minutes. Rosie, I have a question. Steve here. It's um, almost more than an issue of comment. Given how long any kind of uh, systems change often takes. What amazes me about the recent uh, voting rights successes coming so close as they did to the election or the primary, depending on the state, was how fast we were able to implement positive change. It's quite, uh, it's quite a refreshing exception to the usual slow pace of things. Absolutely. And I, I mean, there may have been several factors that, that uh, played a role there. It's, it's hard to say exactly what it was, but um, at least in North Carolina, the fact that there was already um, in an accessible electronic mechanism in place for other voters made it, um, made it, uh, I think, sped up the process in, in increasing access there. It's hard to say why else is going on besides the fact that this has been kind of a, a general, um, there's been a, a movement across the nation for p- pushing these kinds of voting changes. And so for that, we are really grateful to be part of um, that broader movement. When the dam breaks, the water flows. Yeah. Rosie, this is Chris Bell. I just wondered if you'd address the issue of why it's difficult to attack witness requirements. North Carolina had uh, witness requirements in their uh, statute 
partly as a result of some election fraud uh, done by the GOP, uh, where they uh, got uh, solicited uh, uh, absentee ballots from people and then marked them in favor of the GOP candidate and sent them in. And so the state imposed a requirement for two witnesses or a notary public. They dropped that down to one witness or a notary public for the 2020 election. Um, but uh, how is that difficult to challenge under the ADA and 504? Thanks, Chris. Um, so it is difficult in, in several ways. One is that um, it's hard to crystallize. So witness requirements are generally burdensome, and it's hard to crystallize in a way that's compelling for courts um, how just how much more burdensome witness requirements are for for blind voters and other voters with disabilities. Um, so that that was that was a, a tricky part there. Um, and in North Carolina specifically, um, because voting fraud has become such a, or the, the specter of voting fraud has become such a, a hot button and politicized issue, um, the, uh, the state legislation was incredibly, um, incredibly focused on having what the, they see as these extra protections, even if in practice they don't necessarily um, afford the kinds of protections against voter fraud that um, that the, legis the, the state legislature believes that they do. So, so there are several factors there, um, and those are a few of them. But but um, there are we do hope to try to address um, issues such as uh, uh, witness requirements going forward. Though generally, um, uh, legislation is is and legislative advocacy, which is falls outside the purview of of DRA at least is is um, likely the most effective route to address that. Just as an aside, uh, where notary public uh, uh, involvement is required uh, in this or other states, there's actually now a one major company that's offering remote notary services. Which is, I mean, that's that's sorry. Did you said there is a state that is offering remote notary services, or did you ask if there are states? company, a national company? So if someone is in a state where uh, a notarization is required uh, to complete the election process, it may be possible to uh, utilize uh, virtual services of a notary as well. Absolutely, and I'm, that's, I'm glad to hear about that. Um, yeah, I'm wondering, I wonder how that's played out in, in, in voting so far. Well, it's new. They just apparently announced it in the last couple of weeks. So I guess we'll- I think we'll, it's DocuSign we'll, or, or a subsidiary thereof. This is Tori. I'm actually also a notary and have really enjoyed um, in New York, there was an executive order that permitted virtual notarization, which was truly a game changer. Um, and I believe now they are uh, talking about passing bills to make it permanent. Um, so I would love to see that, particularly in the voting context where you're talking about something that is so unbelievably critical. All right. So maybe if we have another minute or so for questions right now before we move on to some other um, topics. Well, let me go on to our, to our next topic. That was that was very helpful. And uh, let's go on to our next topic now, and which I'm sure will do just as much so. This is Tori. I see there is a hand up. Was there another question just before we get to me? John, you may unmute. Ah, there we go. Thank you. Um, Rosie, I joined shortly after the session started, so I didn't get the full name of your group. But what I want to ask is, in your work with making, dealing with uh, alternative ways to vote rather than the paper ballot, I assume you've run across concerns about security, and I'm wondering how you have uh, 
uh, dealt with, with those concerns? Thanks for asking that question, John. Um, we have indeed run across some of those concerns. Um, generally speaking, um, we have dealt with them. We have, we have uh, been able to consult with some, some voting tech experts on this, and, and, and we've, we've dealt with those concerns by, by uh, a number of ways. A main one being that when, when electronic voting is expanded to, so in North Carolina specifically, um, the, the state did try to raise the issue of, of, um, of uh, security in electronic voting. We were able to, to push back on that because they were already offering the electronic voting to, to some voters. It was not, um, so, so that kind of undermined their, their security question there because, because uh, they, they already found it secure enough to offer to uniform and to military and overseas um, voters. Um, and then when, when you're tacking on voters for whom uh, print format is, is not accessible, that again is, is um, while a significant group, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a huge, um, huge uh, voting group. And so it doesn't, um, it, it doesn't necessarily pose a quote unquote honeypot um, for, for purposes of, of hacking. There are also are several purpose-built um, remote accessible vote by mail um, platforms that have um, a myriad security measures in place. Um, and, that, and, and in the actual marking of the ballot, it's done locally um, on individual computers and individual networks rather than, um, than uh, via, um, via the, the a large connected internet network. Um, and so, so those are several ways that, that we dealt with the, the security questions there. And uh, there have been no issues in, since, I mean, since the, since the electronic voting was implemented for the 2020 election um, in North Carolina, there haven't been any security issues that have arisen. You have no other questions. All right. So I guess now um, I will then pass it on to Tori. Thanks, Rosie. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about accessible pedestrian signals. Um, I talked about this at the last, I met, was it the last in-person ACB conference? I know it might not be. It was 2019, I think, when it was in I Rochester. Was. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Um, so I might, I may have met some of you there to talk about this, but um, so we have, uh, we have a case in New York and we have a case in Chicago and the New York case was the first one. It, uh, we represent the American Council of the Blind New York chapter, the New York affiliate. And, uh, we have, individuals. So we have um, uh, a person who's blind and a person who is deafblind uh, as our plaintiffs. And in this case, um, this was something that had been brewing in the community for a while. And let me just kind of take a step back and talk a little bit about what accessible pedestrian signals are. Um, they are vibrotactile and audio devices that are affixed to crossings, to street crossings, um, that make sound and vibrate when the walk sign is on and when the walk sign is not on. So it gives certainty to you when you're deciding whether or not to cross. Um, and they, they've existed since the 1950s. I mean, the old versions were called bird calls because they sound a little bit like birds, which is difficult to, to suss out in, in the environment, but, um, but the more recent ones, um, sound, uh, they go like, bup, 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 which, um, 
is very, very distinct. And uh, they're commonplace in other countries, and they have been commonplace and kind of rolling out over the last 30 years in, in some cities in the United States. I think San Francisco um, has a lot of them, and then a lot of states have... Um, have adopted them as well. I think Maryland has, and uh, a lot of cities like Phoenix and um, DC has a lot and um, uh, Austin, I think. So essentially what they do is it emits a locator tone so that you can find the crossing point. Um, and then you push the button, which uh, will also vibrate if you're deafblind. And uh, it will vibrate and tell you that the walk sign is on when the walk signal has changed. So this has become increasingly important in intersections that are not predictable and not regular. Uh, this has been especially an issue since the rollout of Vision Zero, which you may have heard of if you're in um, one of many cities that has adopted it. It is essentially a platform of policies to reduce pedestrian injuries and deaths um, from cars. But one of the central sort of remedies or um, uh, innovations, they would probably say, for uh, reducing pedestrian injuries and fatalities is what's called a leading pedestrian interval, uh, which is really just a fancy way of saying when the pedestrian light comes on before the car traffic gets the green light. Um, and so what that means is usually pedestrians have, you know, a seven to 10 second lead. But if you're waiting for a parallel surge, you've just missed your crossing window um, and you wind up deciding to cross at the moment that cars think that the pedestrian phase is over and will turn into you. So this sort of innovation has actually made uh, a lot of urban environments much more dangerous for blind pedestrians than they were before. Uh, and that kind of renewed a lot of advocacy around this. And in New York, there was a broad coalition of advocates who went to the city. They wrote a letter to then Mayor Bloomberg <laughs> just to give you a sense of how long ago this was. Uh, and it had ACB, it had NFB, it had uh, uh, various independent living centers, various uh, rehab centers, just uh, a, a huge coalition of people saying, you know, this is making streets less safe. You have an obligation under the law to make these intersections accessible to us who are blind. Just because we can't see the signal doesn't mean we're not entitled to have that information. Um, and so they did an incredible, uh, uh, incredible amount of advocacy. And the city did very little in response. So uh, they... Uh, a local law was passed that mandated that they installed 25 a year and then ultimately 75 a year. But New York City is a city with 13,200 intersections. And they were uh, installing as many as 100 new signals a year, which also weren't accessible. So the city would have never become accessible. And uh, while the city, you know, met with advocates and, you know, uh, uh, had quarterly meetings and said, we're working on it. Um, by the time we filed the lawsuit in 2018, and this is eight years after advocacy had begun, um, there were only 3% uh, of intersections 
had accessible pedestrian signals. That was the result of eight years of, you know, truly stupendous advocacy work. Um, And so that's when we get involved. And, you know, we always tell people that advocacy advocacy comes first. Litigation, as uh, I forgot who mentioned it this uh, earlier in this, it takes forever. Uh, It is uh, uncertain. So, you know, we always encourage people to do advocacy first, but here they had done it and it hadn't changed. So we came in, we filed the case in 2018, and we had um, several different sort of uh, uh, angles about why what they were doing uh, was illegal and discriminated against people's vision disabilities. The first thing was um, under the ADA, a city has to provide meaningful access to its services, programs, and activities. So we said, this isn't meaningful access. Only 3% of intersections are accessible. Um, This isn't enough to, to get from point A to point B. This isn't enough to be able to safely access streets. And meanwhile, they're on roll, they're they're letting out like 500 to a thousand new LPIs every year um, that are, you know, spreading this uh, across the city, but not necessarily in a predictable way so that uh, a blind pedestrian would have any idea whether an intersection even had an LPI. Um, So that was the first piece was the the current state of inaccessibility uh, is so catastrophically low that it does not provide meaningful access to people with vision disabilities. The second thing that we challenged was this installing new intersections without APS. And I know you guys are lawyers, um, which is fantastic. Um, And you may know that the ADA had sort of a a grand bargain, right? And the grand bargain was you have to provide meaningful access today. You need that as soon as possible. You need to provide meaningful access today. But we won't make you install it everywhere. We won't make you make every single feature of every single thing of life accessible right away. That would, you know, they said it would cost too much. Um, But the the grand bargain was, you know, when you decide to upgrade something, when you install something new, when you choose to spend money to improve a feature, then you have to make it accessible. And it doesn't matter what it costs. That is your obligation going forward. Um, And so in this case, the city had done neither. They hadn't um, provided meaningful access, but they had also been installing, you know, 100 to 150 brand new signals every year without accessible pedestrian signals. Um, And then similarly, they would do these massive renovations, spend millions of dollars to reconfigure intersections, to add bike lanes, to do all the stuff that, you know, um, departments of transportation, I think, have been eager to do in the last 10 years, but they wouldn't make it accessible. And so, you know, those were kind of the three uh, legal claims that we used uh, to hopefully push the city to take action. So uh, the <laughs> it took uh, two years of litigation. Uh, it was aggressively litigated. And uh, last October, our judge ruled in favor of ACB and said, you know what, you're right. This doesn't provide meaningful access. And by the time of that 
decision, 5% of the intersections were accessible. So in those two years, they had increased the percentage by 2%. And the judge was not impressed and said, how can you tell me 5% is meaningful access? That's one in 20 intersections, you know, and the danger is so significant. I mean, if you believe you are crossing at the right time and you are not, that is an incredibly dangerous situation. So the judge acknowledged that. He uh, he listened to the stories that our plaintiffs had about their uh, horrific experiences just trying to get to work, to see their friends, to go shopping, to do whatever it is that you know people want to do in their lives, um, and how it was just a daily struggle. Um, you know, either asking, having to rely on strangers for for help and advice, which of course you know d- denies you your your independence in a certain way, um, or uh, not everyone in New York is very helpful is another piece of it. Um, you know, or, or or essentially guessing and guessing wrong. It's just it, it, it's a really um, it's a really stressful position to be in. So he agreed that there was no meaningful access. He agreed that um, they had been illegally installing new intersections without making them accessible. Um, we we didn't quite win on the renovations piece because he wanted more information about the scope of the renovations. Um, but, you know, after that, he he ordered us to essentially attempt to settle the case. We attempted to settle it. We could not. Um, and so we get to the second phase, uh, which is remedy. So we have a judgment that says this system is illegal. It's discriminatory. It's unsafe. What do we do about it? Um, and that is always the bigger question, right? It's a, what is what is reasonable? What is a, what is a, a, what they can pay for? What they can afford? Um, and so this 2021 has been the year of remedy. So we um, submitted competing remedial plans. We um, we got a, a, a slew of community letters from uh, ACB, American Foundation, I mean, all, from all these or- different organizations basically trying to impress upon the court how important this is because, you know, our judge is a cited guy. He doesn't uh, really understand um, what this means day to day. So, you know, we, we, we got a lot of community support we submitted our proposed remedial plan and essentially the city's plan would make the city accessible in zones. They want to create what they call zones of accessibility, which I think sounds rather dystopian, where they will make all intersections in a particular neighborhood accessible and then do it neighborhood by neighborhood. Um, and that it will take between 30 and 40 years to make the city accessible. So we obviously said that was completely uh, inadequate. It's inappropriate. Um, You don't prioritize uh, people against each other like that, neighborhoods against each other. It leads to profound inequities. Um, So where we are with that is we are waiting for the judge to rule on a remedy. Um, and I wish I knew what it would be, but you'll have to stay tuned for that next time. Um, 
And yeah, that's that's basically the New York case. And just briefly, um, a year later, after we filed this in 2018, we filed a similar case in Chicago, uh, Metropolitan ACB of Chicago. And um, there, the Chicago situation was catastrophically worse. Chicago had a total of 15 intersections that had APS, 15. Um, and so we filed a lawsuit there as well. And recently, uh, the Department of Justice intervened and said, you know, this is discriminatory. We agree with the plaintiffs. You know, we, we want to be part of the case. We need to enforce the ADA. They're violating the law. Um, and they also wound up filing a statement of interest in our New York case. Of course, you know, we're, we're in a much more advanced stage of the litigation. Um, but yeah, that's basically the, the status. And, um, you know, it's been uh, it's been an interesting ride because I think that these issues are they're they're appearing everywhere. Right. I mean, all these cities are trying to create a, a safer pedestrian experience. They're trying to they're investing lots of money. We're talking about a, a massive infrastructure bill that might be coming through Congress. Um, lots and lots of money. And we're trying to make sure that, you know, if you spend that money, you have to make features accessible. That's what the law requires. It's what's right. It's what's just. Um, but, you know, it, we're we're, we're 30 years post ADA and we're still fighting for that. It's it's kind of uh, it's kind of outrageous that this is something um, that needs to be said. But but yeah, I mean that's that's the the gist. Um, are there happy thank, to talk thank about you it? On, on that, Tori. This is Chris Bell. A couple of points I want to make. Um, first of all, the fact that there is going to be infrastructure money, uh, a fairly significant amount, makes it very important for uh, advocates at the local level where decisions will be made as to what will be done on different streets and different intersections. We have to be involved in that at the local level to make sure and remind the departments of transportation that they have an obligation to install accessible pedestrian signals. That's one point. Second point is that while this has been going on uh, on a parallel track, the Federal Highway Administration which is a component of the U.S. Department of Transportation, has issued uh, proposed amendments to the Manual and Uniform Traffic Control Devices. The Manual and Uniform Traffic Control Devices sets out the standards for various traffic control devices, including accessible pedestrian signals. However, uh, the manual has never required uh, the installation of accessible pedestrian signals. It recognizes uh, with regard to leading pedestrian intervals and something similar called exclusive pedestrian intervals that people with vision loss are extremely uh, endangered and disadvantaged by these systems. But it still, although it recognizes this and acknowledges it, does not require them. So ACB and uh, other uh, organizations have vociferously commented uh, on these proposed amendments, and ACB also wrote a letter to Secretary Buttigieg of the Department of Transportation setting forth all of the uh, harms that result from the failure of the federal government to require uh, accessible pedestrian signals. Um, so, uh, and, and finally, there really is not a lot of uh, case law on this. So there is a published decision out of the Eastern District of New York, which you can find on, on Westlaw, and also Lori Scharf and Mike Godno 
uh, litigated uh, over one intersection in uh, Long Island. Um, so uh, this is a very important, this notion that we can attack a lack of accessible pedestrian signals systemically is extremely significant. And uh, I just want people to recognize that. Thank you. I'm really, I'm really glad you mentioned that. I mean, the local level is so critical. It, there, the the uh, coalition that came about in New York is the Pedestrians for Accessible and Safe Streets, and they came about after the letter and after there was an action on the letter um, to the mayor, and they have been dogging on the on, on legislatures, on the DOT, and that kind of pressure makes an enormous difference. I mean, if that pressure hadn't existed, there wouldn't have been a city council law mandating any, right? And that was because advocates got together. They testified at hearings. They invited um, uh, elected officials to uh, uh, blindfold try and cross the street to give them a sense of the level of, of danger. Obviously, they're not trained independent travelers, but, you know, put a little fear into them so they understand. They did all of that work that really laid the groundwork for it. And um, in terms of the money that's coming down, I mean, that is really critical. And it's really critical to have these multi-pronged approaches. The MUTCD is a really good example. I mean, that is a very technical uh, thing. The uh, Most people don't know about it. It's, it's seems, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a technical manual, right? But it doesn't, um, it doesn't speak to APS in that way. It's not, it doesn't recognize that. And part of that is because there's such a gap at the federal level with evolving technologies in the ADA. And this is part of the problem with web accessibility too, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but, you know, they haven't, they, they promulgated draft guidelines um, about pedestrian rights of way that would require APS. They promulgated that uh, 10 years ago, um, and the regulations have not taken effect. There was, of course, a lot of opposition from DOTs, but a lot of support from um, the disability community and various disability communities, honestly, because it also involves curb cuts um, and things like that. And yet there's been no action on it. So, you know, this is one of those ways where there's a vacuum because what people understood about accessibility in 1990 when the ADA was passed is pretty different um, than the technology that exists today. I mean, when, when I talk about LPIs, these leading pedestrian intervals, in the before times, uh, that was a physical change. You used to have to send an electrician out to a, 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 a traffic signal, open up the signal box, you know, rotate physical dials and press physical buttons. Now you can do that with a USB key that has software loaded onto it. And so this is one of the areas where the law hasn't really kept up. Um, and that's why, you know, it's it's fantastic that ACB and other orgs have really been trying to uh, push to get to have the courts fill the gaps where the legislature uh, didn't. So, you know, uh, the very first APS case was, yeah, Lori Scharf and, and Mike Adino in Long Island. Um, they only cha challenged a, a handful of intersections. I think it was somewhere between five and 10. It was a small number. Um, and the New York case was the very first 
APS litigation of a whole city. Um, and, you know, our, our hope is that this fills in those gaps in federal law, that this establishes in some way a standard that's a warning to all of the other cities. If you better get with this, you know, this is what this is the future, right? And the future has to be accessible and you can start now or you can wait until your community and your advocates come after you and sue you. Um, so that's very much that's very much my hope about where this is going. Corey, uh, uh, another aspect of why uh, consumer activism and involvement on the local level is so important is illustrated by the fact that New York City is the past master at uh, desultorily, desultory, expensive, and endless litigation. New York City, if they don't get a remedy which is satisfactory to them, which means almost by definition not satisfactory to us, will appeal and they'll appeal again, and they'll appeal again. Anyone who's ever ridden the subway knows that that case has been going on for well over 300 years uh, uh, and is likely to continue for a while. So uh, even though we all believe uh, in, in, in litigation uh, as an important strategy and an important uh, galvanizing force for good and for change, we have to never forget that the line behind that and parallel to it, uh, advocacy, uh, political work, uh, and nonstop effort on the community level are often indispensable situations where a huge bureaucracy uh, can defer the activity for years. Absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate that. And, you know, I'm a lawyer. You're all lawyers. I love suing people. That's what I love to do. Um, but it's a tool. It's one of many tools that can be used to achieve an, an outcome. Um, and I'm on the subways case, so I, I feel that one very acutely. Um, but, you know, there is progress. I mean, so one of the things that you may know is that Tammy Duckworth, uh, a senator with a disability, uh, has introduced a bill in the Senate. And there's now a companion bill in the House called the ASAP Act. Um, which is specifically about rapid transit and commuter rails. Um, and it, it, it came from a kind of horrifying realization that here we are 30 years after the ADA, and yet the vast majority of these legacy systems, these systems that existed before the ADA were passed, are horrifically inaccessible. And uh, it, in her bill, that would provide 80% federal reimbursement to uh, municipalities and to agencies that add accessibility features. And that includes not just elevators, but includes things like tactile paving, braille signage, I mean, all kinds of um, uh, audio announcements, right? All these kinds of things that, again, have sort of, they seem obvious, and uh, you wouldn't think that they would be so hard, but the real hope is that with um, kind of money backing it up, there will be more of an incentive to provide it. And, it, you know, it, it's a no-brainer. Accessibility helps everybody. Everybody benefits from 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 uh, uh, audio announcements, from uh, better signage, from, I, I mean, it's just, uh, it, it's really silly that, that these things have taken so long, but it wouldn't happen without that kind of advocacy. And, you know, you, you remember that you have a voice and you have power and um, it, it, it can be a little scary sometimes to kind of confront. I mean, you guys are lawyers, so you're probably fine with it. But uh, a lot of advocates I talk to are a little nervous about it. And it's like, no, these are your rights and this is your world and you live in it, too. And the world, you know, you deserve to have a world that meets your needs. Um, so, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, what topic shall we take up next? Uh, I think there's a question. I was going to just ask if you wanted to take the question. Sure. Okay. Charles, you may unmute. Hi. Uh, you know, in 2017, ACB adopted a resolution uh, 
that re requested that CGMs, devices to measure blood sugar levels, be accessible. Um, and that was because, you know, diabetes is a major cause of blindness and also, at that time, the third leading cause of death because of the adverse effects that diabetes has on other parts of the body. Uh, now, there have been apps developed so that the some of the uh, CGMs, constant monitoring glucose devices, uh, can be accessed. But, you know, many blind people can't afford iPhones or anything, things like that. So what we really want is to have these devices to be accessible out of the package so you don't have to rely on an iPhone. What is being done in that area? Oh, that's an interesting question because I actually uh, represent the American Diabetes Association as well uh, in a case involving the New York City school system and its failure to provide accommodations to students with diabetes. Um, I was not familiar with that. I know that they have smartphone apps and that if you, you know, depending on the CGM, right, like they're, they're evolving every day and we're, we're getting now into a world of closed loop systems and very, very cool technology. Um, but I wasn't aware that they're uh, inaccessible to people who are blind. Um, um, I would love it if you would send me an email um, and just uh, my email is T Atkinson, T-A-T-K-I-N-S-O-N at dralegal.org. Um, but yeah, I wasn't aware of that. And I'll, I'll certainly pass that along. That's, that's a really uh, interesting and important point. I think I can elaborate on that, Charles, unless you want to. Well, anyway, uh, there, there are two major kinds of... Uh, Continuous glucose monitoring devices, CGMs, as they're called, as I understand it. The main one is the Dexcom, and now one that gets a lot of play is the Abbott. Now, they, uh, the Dexcom certainly has the capacity to output output readings to an iPhone, and many people do that. But as Charles says, the iPhone is is uh, is uh, expensive, and not everyone has either the money or the technical skill uh, to use it, especially given that diabetes can cause uh, a loss of uh, of uh, of uh, sensory capability in hands and fingers, which would make using an iPhone all the more difficult. Now, uh, for a while, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services actually barred uh, uh, use of uh, iPhones uh, 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 for that purpose. They, they barred people from using their uh, CGM devices uh, to put to, to an iPhone. The reasons for that were complex and uh, uh, shrouded in controversy in history, uh, but due to primarily due to pressure from parents who wanted to have easy access to their children's readings. Nobody cared about us, mind you. But due to a tremendous amount of advocacy by parents who wanted access to their children's readings, the uh, uh, CMS re, uh, re, uh, relaxed that rule. Uh, so for somebody who can afford an iPhone and knows how to use it, uh, uh, then, then there's no problem. But that's only a very small percentage of the people who are at issue, as you say. That's really interesting. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I mean, I know the freestyle has kind of a separate... Um external device that isn't an iPhone. But uh, but anyway, uh, I really that's a really interesting point. I mean, this, I think, just shows again where what happens when you have gaps in federal regulations. I mean, that there there's no federal requirement to make those devices accessible. And so um, 
I that that's my guess about why that is. But I, I think the technology is evolving pretty quickly, and um, hopefully, advocacy can uh, can make a big difference there. So uh, I want to recognize the time. It is three twenty two. I was just going to mention briefly um, some of our. Uh, app and, and uh, web accessibility cases. So this is a really great transition. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, we challenged the web accessibility of the uh, New York Department of Elections. You couldn't even register to vote, which was obviously a problem. Um, we have a lawsuit on half the lighthouse regarding ADP software. Uh, we uh, have the case against the sharks. There's something that we are looking at now that I'd be curious to hear from folks about. Um, my understanding is that a lot of uh, medical practices, including my own, have developed these kind of my chart, my health apps in order to access your medical records, in order to communicate with your, your doctor. Uh, and many of these apps are completely inaccessible. Um, so that's something we're looking at. And if that's something that you've experienced, definitely send me an email or give me a call. Um, and my information is on the website. I'm happy to share it after the fact as well. Um, but that's something that we're looking into. And um, we also saw this with, I mean, it, it, we're, we're a little uh, uh, late on this now, but we also heard about this in the context of the COVID vaccination program that some of the websites for signing up to receive vaccines were not accessible. Um, but the other thing generally, though, is that like, as with, you know, intersections, as with everything, apps are the future, right? And uh, uh, they're in many cases a lot cheaper than real infrastructure or other kinds of services. And so, um, you know, we have some concerns that in an effort to cut corners, save money, uh, uh, reduce uh, reduce costs, that um, a lot of municipalities, a lot of organizations, uh, private and public, are going to kind of switch to apps. Um, to do things. And so, you know, given that once again, apps are something that there is no um, federal regulation about, uh, well, there's limited federal regulation, but, um, you know, given that kind of gap, it's really going to be up to the community and up to advocates to hold people's feet to the fire and ensure that um, these apps are made accessible. Hello? I didn't know if there were any questions about that, but... um, (laughs) Tori, just a, a, a quick comment on that. One of the ironies here, again, is that apps are, on average, much easier to make accessible. Uh, if, Isn't if that always the irony? <laughs> trouble to do it. But with respect to the question of the uh, of the healthcare portals, with respect to those, uh, and with respect to the uh, uh, self service kiosks that are now popping up in all kinds of healthcare facilities, we have to enter all kinds of inf- information in order to get uh, to get in. I think that both of those raise issues uh, not only under the ADA, which are obvious, but also uh, as compulsory breaches of confidentiality under HIPAA. I'm glad I'm not a HIPAA lawyer. <laughs> I know it, it, it's it's strange. I mean, talk about things that are really easy to make accessible, um, but, you know, they kind of have to have it drilled into them. And, you know, we have done some other healthcare um, work. I know Rosie has worked on Hinkle. Rosie, if you wanted to jump in about that briefly. Absolutely. I can speak to that. This is Rosie again. Um, So we, uh, our organization, Disability Rights Advocates, um, has had the pleasure of representing the California Council of the Blind, in addition to several individuals in a suit challenging the inaccessibility of um, Medi-Cal notices, um, uh, failure to provide 
notices in uh, an accessible format for, for beneficiaries and applicants who are um, blind or who otherwise, um, for whom print is inaccessible. Um, so that case is, is uh, still pending, um, but, but, uh, but that's one other area that we've, we've managed to work, um, litigate and, and also negotiate um, around uh, access for, for um, ACB members. Um, and it touches on the healthcare space as well. Thank you, Rosie. And I can say on behalf of, of uh, CCB, that uh, DRA has done outstanding work in the case where uh, California, again, uh, is really uh, uh, recalcitrant. You can say that again. <laughs> it's been a slog. Put it mildly. Yeah. Um, but so- anyway, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say it is 325. I think we definitely want to open it up to questions for folks yeah. about anything we've talked about or or anything else, honestly. I, I, I'm delighted to hear from fellow attorneys, um, particularly. Before, before we do, let, let, may, may I just say one thing? Uh, uh, we have a special guest here today who I want to acknowledge, and uh, it's terribly embarrassing how it happened. I probably shouldn't even uh, reveal it, except that he is here. It turns out that there was a terrible breakdown of communications, uh, and uh, our originally intended speaker has shown up and is on the line. And uh, obviously, we we can't hear from him now. We would have loved to, and, and we're very uh, grateful for what we did here today. But I want to introduce Adal Ibrar and thank him for being here and uh, issue him a promise that next year, uh, uh, since we'll probably be doing a hybrid event next year, uh, we want to have him back either online or in person, as the case may be. Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, it's been very interesting to uh, listen to your speakers. So uh, certainly I'll be more than happy to uh, attend next year, either by remote or in person. That's great. Thank you, Adam. Now, let's go ahead. Yes, with further questions. For this. You have no hands raised yet. So... Okay, and uh, in our remaining few minutes, then until or unless somebody does raise a hand, uh, uh, Tori, Rosie, are there any other matters that, that uh, you'd like to bring up? Your work, uh, your scope of your work is so vast. I mean, uh, if this were a restaurant menu, I would die of approach approach anxiety before ordering. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, this is Rosie. I would say. I think that we've already been hearing some interesting possible case ideas, but even though uh, the scope of our work is quite vast, we are always interested to hear from, from folks on, on different barriers that they've encountered. Well, I mean, we hope that they're not encountering barriers, but we're, we're, um, we really welcome any, any um, case ideas or, or thoughts on, on new uh, areas of advocacy to pursue. So um, yeah. Tori's given her email a few times. I can give mine as well. Um, it's R B I. C H E L L at D R A legal.org. Um, but we're, we're always open to, to hearing from folks. And I do see, it looks now that there are several hands raised. Great. So I don't know who wants to. Okay. Area code three Oh five last three, nine, eight, three. You may unmute. This is my boss, Sheila on the phone. <laughs> there, taking wonderful care of us. Thank you, Sheila. Hi, Jim. <clears throat> this is Jim Crott. Was that T. Atkins at DRLLegal.org? Close. I have or, a lot more consonants. So it's T A T K I N S O N. At DRLegal.org. You can also Google me. I'm one of the, uh, my name is Tori with an I E, which is pretty unusual. Um, or you can look up disability rights advocates. Um, both of our emails should be out there. So I, uh, I will forward this to the uh, president of the diabetes affiliate of ACB, a new president, and he's very interested 
in moving forward with this whole issue of accessible, accessible um, meters and stuff. Great. I'll look forward to hearing from them. Thank you. Okay. Chris Prentice, you, you may unmute. Thanks, Sheila. Tori, uh, uh, in your discussions with the city of New York, have y'all approached them with the fact that since they're uh, replacing 100 a year, that if uh, they come forward with uh, making sure that the, all the new ones are accessible and then every time they replace a new one, that they would uh, put in, they would also replace an old one with an accessible system and basically do them an intersection at a time kind of thing? Uh, you, you mean, were, did we challenge that or, or did they um, did they change their ways? They did change their ways a little. So uh, after they lost the case, they've started putting in APS at all new intersections. Um, and they've also started installing APS as part of what they call major reconstructions, where you're moving poles or you're putting in a new light. Um, but, you know, we have differences, I think, about the scope of what would trigger the requirement for APS. I mean, our point is, you know, there's a certain point at which it doesn't really matter what the law requires. It makes good financial sense and good city planning sense to just add accessibility when you're doing work anyway. I mean, if you break ground in New York City, it costs $10,000. Why not add a $500 box while you're at it? It's just uh, uh, one of those uh, common sense things that, you know, cities really struggle to understand. The... uh and, and I'm in Austin, and, and the way that it works here, um, basically, they haven't put put them in every intersection. But if if someone contacts the uh, engineering department and requests one to be put in, like in their neighborhood or whatever, then they'll come in and do that. That way, they're they're basically almost on demand um, to where there's actually because they because a lot of times their argument is, well, who's going to use them? And you know, some places are going to get used more than others. And obviously, there's few more people in New York than there are in Austin, but, um, and most of downtown has audible signals, but they're putting them in more in the neighborhoods where, where a request has been made, where there are, you know, blind or deafblind people in the neighborhood that have, I mean, it just takes one person making a request to get one put in. So. Oh, I love Austin. That's fantastic. So the issue with New York, which has 200,000 people who are blind, I, I really, the, every corner uh, is being used by somebody with a vision disability. So New York ostensibly takes requests, but the problem is they only install, now I think it's 150 a year, um, and their request backlog is something like 3,500 requests, uh, and it takes them on average more than three years to respond to it. So it is just, uh, uh, it's not on demand. It, there, we have, you know, ILCs and, and vision services orgs that have been waiting literally years, sometimes as many as eight to nine years to get an APS installed. Um, I, I wish that it were uh, as efficient as it sounds Austin is. Tori, is there any recourse under state law? Um, you know, the, the New York state law, I mean, it, it depends on your state, obviously the New York state law I'm doesn't, thinking of New York. I'm thinking yeah, of New York, yeah. yeah, the New York state law isn't the, 
particularly more broad than the ADA. We did sue under the New York City human rights law. And I would definitely urge uh-huh. those of you um, who are, you know, dealing with accessibility uh, issues or, or, or litigators yourself on this issue, look at state and local law because the New York City law is very, very good. Um, in this case, you know, the conduct violated the ADA anyway, but the, the bar for the, the city law is um, it's very different. You just have to um you're entitled to equal access, right, under the, the city law. So uh, I would definitely encourage folks to do that. And and just for uh, uh, interest's sake, the um, subway lawsuit that we have, we did bring only under city law in state court, um, because as m- many of you may know, the legacy transit agencies all received exemptions from the ADA to avoid having to make things accessible. Okay, John, you may unmute. Rosie, could you just repeat your email address, please? Absolutely. Um, my email address is R, as in uh, road, mm-hmm. B-I-C, as in cat, H, as in hat, E-L-L, at D-R-A, legal, dot org. Good, folks. We're going to have to wrap up. I want to first remind you, anybody who's not a member of Avia who wants to attend our business meeting, and I hope you will, please call me at 510-357-1844 or email me at smendel at panics.com, and I'll make sure you know when that meeting is. Otherwise, Avia members uh, will receive notice. I want to give you the closing CEU code. It's 21128-21128. And obviously, I want to thank uh, our, our, our presenters for stepping into the breach and doing such a wonderful job. And I want to thank uh, Sheila, uh, and I want to thank uh, uh, everyone involved in making this possible, and 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 thank uh, our guest Adol as well. So thank you all very much, and we look forward to everyone having a wonderful conference and talking to you again soon. Bye now.